0: happy sabbath i'm reading from first john five eleven through 13 out of the new international version and this is the testimony god has given us eternal life and this life is in his son he who has the son has life he who does not have the son of god does not have life i write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of god so that you may know that you have eternal life Good morning, church. It's good to see all of you. I see quite a few visitors today. Glad that you're here with us as well. Um, if you can remember me preaching here before, you've got a good memory, because I look back and it's been like 15, 16 years or something like that. I didn't realize that much time had gone by. But uh, it's good to be sharing with you today. Two ministers were returning from a Bible study one day when they picked up a hitchhiker. Now, he was no ordinary hitchhiker, but a Christian who uh, used hitchhiking to share his faith and beliefs. And upon discovering that his benefactors were ministers, he began preaching to them the doctrine of once saved, always saved, no matter what. After some questioning, they pressed him to the point of absurdity. You mean that you would remain saved if you went down and robbed a bank, they asked? "'That's right,' he insisted. "'In fact, I could take a machine gun, "'go out in the street and mow down everyone in sight, "'and I would still be saved.'" In a reverse situation, two young men were hitchhiking and were picked up by a Christian man who picked up hitchhikers for the very purpose of being able to witness to them. They were barely inside the car when he bluntly asked, "'Are you saved?' They fumbled with their words. "Uh, "'Yes, we we believe in Jesus Christ,' uh, uh, we're Christians, but he insisted, Are you saved today, now? They finally admitted that they didn't know. Since God is judging us now, only God really knows, they reasoned. They concluded that only at the end of their lives, or when their cases came up in the judgment, would they really know for sure. One day, many years ago now, John Nelson Darby was preaching on eternal security in Dwight L. Moody's church in Chicago. His Calvinistic emphasis on one saved, always saved was so strong that Moody felt impressed to interrupt him. Mr. Darby, he asked, are you telling us that we would still be saved if we turned our backs on the light of the gospel? Yes, he said, the light would shine on our back. We marvel at such a presumptuous and unbiblical attitude. On the other hand, many people, young and old, lack any assurance of present salvation. To them, salvation seems to hang, seems to be a matter of day-to-day statistics. You know, did I do more good deeds today than bad? How does the balanced book of my deeds come out today? And if today is okay, what about tomorrow? What if my bad deeds should outnumber my good ones at the moment I die? Or what if I should do something wrong and then die before I'd had a chance to ask forgiveness? Wouldn't that one unforgiven sin keep me out of the kingdom? Unless we think that none of us thinks like this any longer, let's not fool ourselves. There's still a lot more legalism in, in most of us than we care to recognize or admit. It's the default human position. We come by it naturally. Salvation seems to hang on a flimsy thread. Today we're in, tomorrow maybe not. Everything seems to depend on us, but we are so weak and frail. If it depends on us, how can we have any assurance. We try our best, but we seem to keep sinning. How can we say that we are saved? It is, in my opinion, precisely because of this lack of assurance on the part of so many Christians that the doctrine of once saved, always saved found such a ripe soil for growth in certain circles. Let's face it, there's nothing attractive about insecurity, isn't that right? Human nature demands security. Our nervous systems can't handle indefinitely a yo-yo existence. And thus we find that this uh, teaching has become popular in some cases. Now I'm not gonna take the time here this morning to try to disprove from the Bible what I believe to be a false theory of once saved, always saved. That would probably be like preaching to the choir as they say. Chances are that most, if not all of you, are not struggling with that in your personal lives. That particular error does not pose a great threat to most of us here. While some of our Christian friends fall prey to Satan's counterfeit security, we are much more likely to suffer from a complete lack of security. There is a legitimate security as well as a false, and we need to know the difference. Can you say amen? Have you ever had anyone ask you, are you saved? How did it make you feel? Why do we become uneasy when someone asks us that? Perhaps we are reacting against the extreme, cocksure spirit of the man who absurdly believed that even mass murder wouldn't jeopardize his salvation. Secondly, our reticence might arise from an overemphasis on the idea of future judgment. We might feel that we can have no clear-cut assurance of our status with God until then. Perhaps also we want to shun spiritual pride thinking that we will sound arrogant and cocky if we advertise that we're saved. Then, too, a certain amount of fear may haunt us. We don't want to do like Peter, you know, make a resounding declaration of where we stand only to fall flat on our faces in sin. Better not to stick our necks out. What's more, I think many of us remain uncertain as to what saved really means. For the scriptures speak of salvation from several standpoints. Let's look at them now. Actually, one can properly speak of salvation in three tenses, past, present, and future. A converted person has been saved, past tense, from the penalty of sin. We call that justification. He is being saved, present tense, from the power of sin in his life. We call that sanctification. He will be saved, future tense, from the presence of sin, when Christ comes and takes him out of this world. And that will be glorification. And by the way, as you leave today, there will be a handout you'll receive that has all the outline and all the references we're going to use and so on. Let's look at Acts fifteen eleven. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. So in one sense, salvation seems to be the final, ultimate act. Notice also Hebrews 9, 28, the RSV reads, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In addition, the Bible speaks of salvation as a process, already in motion, but not yet completed. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, also from the RSV. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 2 Corinthians 2.15 presents the same idea. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Yet scripture also warrants the saying that we are saved. When Zacchaeus demonstrated a change of heart, Jesus said, this day is salvation. Come to this house. He was already saved. And the Weymouth translation of Romans eight twenty four says, we have been saved by hope. What's more, the Bible describes salvation as something that has taken place in the past, the results of which continue into the present. The familiar text in Ephesians 2, verse 8, for by grace are ye saved through faith, In the original Greek, it's said to emphasize that idea. This is really how we ought to think. As Dr. Sakai Kubo states in his book, Calculated Goodness, truly salvation is a future act, but it is also a present fact. Christ has brought some of the blessings of the future into the present. We can enjoy a little bit of heaven here on earth. Salvation has become a present reality, not all its fullness, but its blessed beginning. I think most of us understand that we were justified when, by faith, we believed and accepted Christ's death on our behalf, surrendering our sinful selves to Jesus. We believe he forgave us completely of our past and declared us righteous. We also believe that sanctification, that process of allowing Christ to remake our characters in his image, is to follow justification. I would like to focus this morning in the time that remains on the important question of how God treats Christians who make mistakes. What is God's attitude towards us when we sin in the process of learning not to sin? How does God treat us when we want to obey but fall short? As I mentioned before, there's a line of thinking among some of us that says that any time a Christian sins, he immediately breaks his relationship with Jesus, and he doesn't get that relationship back until he confesses that sin. Presumably, he would be lost if he were to die between the time of commission and confession. Are you with me? This kind of thinking, which I would dare say most of us have been affected by at some point in our experience, drives those who hold to it crazy they can never find any peace of mind in their spiritual experience. They feel as if they're bouncing in and out of salvation like a basketball going down the court. And like I said earlier, this insecurity is so unattractive that it often leads people to various heresies and fanaticisms of which our once saved, always saved friends are just one example. I'm gonna make an important statement. I believe that to keep from falling we must have a picture in our minds of a God who accepts us when we fall. Let me say that again. To keep from falling, we must have a picture in our minds of a God who accepts us when we fall. Imagine that you are a father with an 11-month-old baby who for the past several weeks has been experimenting with walking by holding on to the furniture. Let's call him Baby Tim. Baby Tim. One day you're sitting in your easy chair in the living room, and across the living room floor, uh, baby Tim is walking along by holding on to the couch. You are naturally anxious to see Baby Tim walk without holding on to things, and so you call to him. He turns and looks at you, and you can tell he's thinking really hard. It must be very frightening f- f- for a baby to take those first few steps on such wobbly legs. Come here, you say, come to daddy. You keep encouraging baby Tim to come until finally after a couple minutes he lets go of the couch and starts across the floor. Naturally, he's very unstable on his legs and about halfway across the living room floor his right toe catches on the carpet and down he goes. You jump up from your chair, leap over to where baby Tim is lying on the floor, jerk him up by one arm and swat him a good one on the bottom. You bad boy, you yell, you can do better than that. Baby Tim is crying by now, but you ignore that and sit him down hard on the floor. Now let me see you stand on those feet of yours and walk like a man. We're all justifiably horrified just thinking of a father who would spank his baby who was engaged in experimental walking. Yet it's amazing how many Christians think that that's how Jesus treats sinners who are engaged in experimental religion. They think that when they sin, Jesus jumps to their side, jerks them by the arm, swats them on the bottom, and says, you bad sinner, you can do better than that. And then he shoves them down on the floor and says, now let me see you walk like a real Christian should. I've just painted for you a picture of God. A picture that I believe is horribly false, but a picture nonetheless. Almost no one would paint God in those graphic terms. But it's amazing how many of us have that picture of God in our heads. Even when our rational mind tells us otherwise, we feel that that's God's attitude towards us when we make a mistake. Let's see if we can't find a different picture of God. We're back in the living room watching baby Tim let go of the couch and walk across the living room floor. Again, baby Tim stumbles and falls, but this time daddy goes over and picks baby Tim up holds him tight in his arms and says, I'm so glad that you want to walk and that you're trying to walk. Then he puts baby Tim gently down on the floor, holds his two little hands and says, now let me help you learn how to walk. In this picture, you participate with baby Tim in his experimental walking. You help baby Tim learn. You help him through his mistakes. This picture, I believe, illustrates God's true attitude towards us when we sin in the process of learning not to sin. Jesus picks us up in his arms, hugs us tight, and says, I'm so glad that you're trying to overcome that you want to overcome. Then he puts us down, places a hand around our shoulder, uses his other hand to grab one of our hands and says, now let me help you learn to do it the right way. How can anyone say that Jesus putting his arm around us and holding our hands when we sin as we learn not to sin is a broken relationship. He died for the very sins we're trying to overcome. At the very least, he's going to stick by us as we learn to overcome. Can you say amen? Jesus does not hold back his kindness until we get our performance in order. He's looking for all the reasons he can possibly find for sharing his kindness with us in spite of our performance to help us improve our performance. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Romans 8, 32. If you want nothing more than to serve Jesus and simply have not yet learned how to do so completely, you can rest assured that Jesus is on your side. You do not break your relationship with him just because you yielded to that strong passion that still exercises some control in your life. To the contrary, he's beside you to encourage you and to help you to do better next time. But for that to happen, you must have the right picture of God in your minds. I was really encouraged by this statement found in the book, Sons and Daughters of God, page 154. To go forward without stumbling, we must have the assurance that a hand all-powerful will hold us up, and... An infinite pity will be exercised toward us if we fall. God alone can at all times hear our cry for help. Most of us understand the all-powerful hand part well enough. Every time we sin, we recognize our weakness and our need of power from outside of ourselves to stop. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, Philippians 4.13. It is a true principle that we cannot overcome our sins unless we have access to a power outside ourselves to help us. But let's look at the second point of assurance that we need in order to go forward without sinning. To go forward without sinning, we must have the assurance that when we do sin, God won't abandon us. Rather, he will pity us, and not with mere human pity, but with infinite pity. That's why it's so crucial that you and I understand justification. Justification is the assurance of acceptance, of infinite pity, that we need when we sin in order to stop sinning. Can I say it plainly? Unless you understand that a sinner who has accepted Christ remains justified when he stumbles and sins, you will not succeed in overcoming your sins. Is that hard to believe? Well, let's reread that statement from a moment ago. To go forward without stumbling, we must have the assurance that a hand all-powerful will hold us up and an infinite pity will be exercised toward us if we fall. The whole tenor of the New Testament suggests that, Paul, that God accepts his people with all their imperfections. Especially is this clear in Paul's letters. Notice Colossians 3, 1-10. Paul begins this chapter with language that makes it clear that these Christians were converted. You have been raised with Christ, he says. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. But notice the sins that these people have yet to completely overcome. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Rid yourselves of all these things, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. Do not lie to each other. These people have been born again, but we can see that they still have a, they're struggling with a long list of sins still. The conclusion seems inescapable that God has not broken his relationship with them just because of their imperfect behavior. I have a question for you. Was Peter converted or unconverted, at the time of the Last Supper, the disciples celebrated with Jesus just before his crucifixion? Think about that one carefully. Well, the answer to that question seems to depend partly on what gospel writer you happen to be reading. Luke says that after Jesus and the disciples had finished eating, quote, a dispute rose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. That's Luke 22, 24. Jesus gently reproved them, and then turning to Peter, he said, Simon Simon behold Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not and when but when and when thou art converted strengthen thy brethren according to Luke it sounds as though Peter was not converted when he was there in the upper room and given Peter's denial of Christ a few hours later we don't have a hard time accepting Luke's account do we but we get a completely different impression from John's gospel. In chapter 13, John tells us how Jesus handled the disciples' argument over who would be considered greatest. He assumed the role of a servant and washed their feet. Peter felt very embarrassed and said to Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Whereupon Peter said, well, in that case, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Notice how Jesus answered Peter's declaration in verses 10 and 11. A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is already clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said not everyone was clean. Jesus made it very clear that with the exception of Judas, all the disciples were clean. At the very least, we can conclude that Jesus meant all except Judas were converted. Yet, according to Luke, it was on this very occasion, the Last Supper, that that Jesus said to Peter, when you are converted. So, was Peter converted or unconverted in the upper room? Apparently, the answer is both. John leaves no doubt that Peter had received the new birth. This is the conversion that every Christian experiences at the beginning of his or her walk with Christ. This is the conversion that saves us and assures us of a place in God's eternal kingdom. On the other hand, in the part of the conversation, the upper room conversation that Luke quoted, Jesus seems to have had in mind the more immediate issue of Peter's upcoming denial. He was talking about a specific character defect that Peter had yet to overcome. The point is this, it is possible for a Christian to be converted in the sense of the general direction of his or her life, while at the same time have specific sins that he has not yet gained the mastery over. Our eternal life, of course, is based on our overall commitment to Christ, our general conversion, and not on the remaining imperfections in our lives. Remember this famous statement from Book Steps to Christ, page 57? If the heart has been renewed by the Spirit of God, the life will bear witness to the fact. The character is revealed not by occasional good deeds and occasional misdeeds, but by the tendency of the habitual words and acts. Adventists have always understood baptism to symbolize the Christian's overall commitment to Christ, while the periodic foot-washing service symbolizes the cleansing of the sins committed by the converted Christian since the last time his or her feet were washed. Sort of a mini rebaptism, if you will. Do you follow me? The good news of the gospel, my friends, is that God accepts our sincere intention to do good as though we had already done it. That's what Ellen White means when she says in Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 382, when it's in the heart to obey God, when efforts are put forth to this end, Jesus accepts this disposition and effort as man's best service. And he makes up for the deficiency with his own divine merit. When it's in your heart to obey God and you're trying to obey God, Jesus accepts you even when you stumble, even when you sin after you've been saved. Can you say amen? Thus the question you have to ask yourself is not whether you've obeyed perfectly, because none of us has. The question you have to ask yourself is whether obeying God is your goal. Are you committed to becoming an overcomer? As long as it's my goal to obey God, He treats me as though I had. Christ's character stands in the place of my character, and I'm justified, accepted before God just as if I'd never sinned. You see, we've often thought of justification solely as forgiveness for our sins committed before conversion. Christ pardons us and declares us righteous, putting his robe of righteousness on us. But then we think that he jerks off the robe of his righteousness every time we sin. No, absolutely not. Justification is a robe that God puts over you, which you continue to wear as you live your Christian life. As long as you keep that robe on, he justifies you instantly when you make a mistake, and your relationship with him, which is the basis and assurance of your salvation, remains unbroken to change the metaphor I'm telling you that justification is like a platform on which you live as long as you stay on the platform you have a relationship with Jesus and you are assured of salvation let me pause for a moment to explain how you could remove yourself from that platform of grace rebellion this is sinning with the full knowledge that it's wrong and with no desire to do what's right The Bible calls it sinning with a high hand. There's no spirit of repentance here. And presumption. This is excusing our sins because we refuse to believe, or do not want to believe, that we can overcome them. Let me state an important principle. Victory over every sin is possible for every Christian. There's no such thing as a sin that it's impossible to overcome. Amen? Repentance means that you believe that statement and are committed to it. You may struggle for some time before you experience complete victory, but you never give up your commitment to be victorious. You never give up trying to gain the victory. Rebellion and presumption would indeed remove you from a right relationship with Christ, taking you off the platform of grace that we were referring to. But those who are justified will, in the process of character development, Make mistakes. Fall short. God knows that. He built the platform, if you will, for the purpose of giving you a foundation on which to develop character, including the mistakes you will make in the process. The platform was built to give Christians a secure place on which to live while making mistakes as they learn not to make mistakes. When you stumble, Christ's character stands in the place of your character, and you are accepted before God just as if you had not sinned. Brothers and sisters, I bring you good news today. God does not reject us every time we make a mistake or fall into sin. As Pastor Jack Sakira has said, if we believe that we lose our justification in Christ each time we sin, we completely invalidate the truth of justification by faith. Such a concept is based on the idea that we are justified because of our obedience, what Christ is doing in us, And not because of what he has already accomplished for us by his doing and dying on the cross. Such an idea makes the gospel good advice instead of good news. I like that way of explaining it. It helps me to understand that God loves me even when I fall short. As long as I want to overcome and am trying to overcome, he stays beside me even when I don't overcome. So my friends, if you have an ongoing relationship with Jesus, a stumbling into sin will not instantly remove you from grace and thereby leave you unprotected should your life end at that moment. One inadvertent sin will not plunge you into eternal destruction. The Christian life is not a perpetual drifting in and out of the family of God. You don't have to live in constant anxiety and insecurity about your relationship with God. Can you say amen? You will want to confess that sin, certainly, not excuse it, not justify it, not hold on to it. But you have a relationship that is not repeatedly turned off and on like a faucet. A man and his wife are not divorced because they have one fight, isn't that right? But should either of them establish a pattern of neglect, the time is likely to come where their union will dissolve. Are you with me? So how can we know that we are saved? How can we know that Jesus is our Savior? We can know because we believe and have accepted him as our Savior. And because we know this, we know that we have been saved by grace. Why should we remain unsure of our relationship to Christ? We're sure of our relationship with our friends, aren't we? We don't doubt their friendship. We trust in it and act in it. And so with Jesus... If we cannot be sure of this, we cannot be sure of anything. If we can't trust God, who can we trust? You know as long as I far back as I can remember, this 95-year-old man here sitting here by the name of Burt Woods has been dad to me. Now, aside from a DNA test, how do I know that I'm his son? I can know because I have no reason to doubt it. And so with our relationship to Christ, we know that we belong to him because we have no reason to doubt it. And if we belong to him, we are saved and can sing with holy confidence, as we did a few moments ago, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. So what is God's will for our security? Let's look quickly at some scripture passages together. We'll start with John 6, 37 and 47. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Romans eight thirty seven. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. One of my favorite promises is Philippians 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1:12. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I'd like to close with three more scriptures to build your confidence and security. And these three I'd like to read from the Phillips translation. 1 John 5, 13. I have written like this to you who already believe in the name of God's Son so that you may be quite sure that here and now you possess eternal life. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. May the God of peace make you holy through and through. May you be kept sound in spirit, mind and body, blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is utterly faithful and he will finish what he has set out to do. In 1 John 4, 17, So our love for him grows more and more, filling us with complete confidence for the day when he shall judge all men. For we realize that our life in this world is actually his life lived in us. Isn't that beautiful? Thus we can agree with Howard Marshall in his book, Kept by the Power of God, pages 206 and 207, When he states the following, it's also in your bulletin. The conclusion to which we find ourselves being led is that the New Testament knows the possibility of failure to persevere. Now that's a theological way of saying the idea of a Christian becoming converted, born again, but then falling away and eventually becoming lost. The the New Testament knows that possibility and warns against it, but it emphasizes the greater possibility of a confidence in God and a continuing faith which, as it is sustained by God, is preserved from fear and from falling. We can firmly say that while it is possible for a Christian to fail to persevere after a genuine experience in salvation, yet with all the promises of a faithful God to sustain those who trust in him, the main emphasis of the New Testament is on confidence and assurance of final salvation. And so, brothers and sisters, while we may not be able to affirm presumptuously that once justified, we are saved for eternity, we can, through the grace of God, as we have often done, confidently sing, I've been redeemed. And as we keep holding on to his hand by faith, we will someday join the heavenly family eternally. Is that your desire? May it be so for each one, is my prayer.